0: Hello. Now then, I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. He was a complete creation of his own making. So I was the very, very first in the whole world. I've got plenty of other peoples. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers, they've all got plenty of kids, I've got plenty of kids on Jim Will It. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sort of kids, they all go home to their parents. He me to do things for him, he wants me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex gave him every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn to prey on some extremely damaged individuals. Sir James Savile, OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than 30 million pounds for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. But the truth is I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fellow, uh, and, which is why... When people say, "Those five places you've got to live in, aren't they expensive?" I said, "Not as expensive as a wife." Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile, as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, no, Desmond. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. No, he's not. Get not me! Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. No. Yeah. I won't. Not oh, until you <laughs> say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and send Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side and say, does that mean anything? And if he says that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex that he would arrange for me and my friends to go to television center and be on his television show. Hey, hey, hey. We've got it all happening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's around, we are going to start with our guests. hope it's been a very good week for you. And here's a very good set to fix it for you. Here we go now with a letter from Lee. Yeah, Lee. Lee. So, I promise. I promise. That you... Give us trouble. Are Are the only one. Are the only one. <laughs> In my life. Well, I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more attacks. I thought it was disgusting. But I did that. Okay. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling, and very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ, but there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Duncroft in Jimmy dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. You used to be a wrestler, didn't you? I still am. I am. I'm feared in every girls' school in this country.
1: Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our ninth look into the life and crimes of Jimmy Seville. As always, we have our normal plugs and show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, that'd be Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Just search for Ian Totten, author, or search for The Deathcast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek. If you would like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to corpsecreekpublishing.com, Click on the sign up button. While you're there, please consider it, clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee. If you'd like to help support the production of this show, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash Patreon DC and sign up there for as little as $2 a month offset the costs of producing this show. If you'd like to find any of my books, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash totten hyphen books. currently have six out, the Blood Gods trilogy, the House of Silver Doors, the Throwaway Girls of Olympia, and my most recent release, Maggie with a, another novel entitled Dirt Flowers in Her Hair coming your way soon. If you like the show, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app, share it on social media, let other people know what you think, and please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. It really does help the show rise up within the Algorithms on the various podcast platforms. For those of you who have done so, thank you. For those of you who have not, what are you waiting for? You stop the show right now, go quick, give a five-star review. You don't even have to say anything, but it does help the show, and it's greatly appreciated. Real quick, thank you for everyone who has been emailing me over the current series we are doing, covering Jimmy Seville, and who is enjoying what I am doing is able to get beyond my pronunciation of the man's name. I appreciate you guys and your support. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, sit back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, Seville was poised to become the megastar the face that was known throughout Britain and the Irish Isles for decades to come. Because somebody asked me how I differentiate between a superstar and a megastar, very quickly, a superstar is an individual who is known, you know, Fairly well by most of a given society. A megastar is someone who is known to everybody across a given area. No matter their race, their creed, sexual orientation, none of that stuff matters. These people know who this individual was. Going to give a great example. Paul McCartney from the Beatles is a superstar. Anyone who was born before the year 2000 pretty much knows who Paul McCartney is worldwide. Those who were born after the year 2000, however, have no idea, by and large, who Paul McCartney was or is and in fact when he did a team up with Kanye West there was a very large group of young people who were touting the fact that McCartney was being given a chance to shine by Kanye West when reality was it was actually flipped around because the majority of people knew Paul McCartney was, well, the name Kanye West is only known, really, to those who either follow the news and its celebrity content religiously, or are under a certain age. So, Jimmy Seville, while he was known across Great Britain, not everyone was familiar with the man or his works. But that was all about to change. There were a number of things that led to this opportunity being presented to Seville. You had his name recognition as well as the image that he had been propagating for a decade and a half at this point on radio as well as television. You had his charity works. You had the fact that Seville was very vocal about his religious beliefs and his attempts to adhere to them, even if he was not always successful at them by his own admission. You also had Seville being included in advertisements from government organizations and being given an OBE. All of these things were just a sprinkling of what was to come when it came to Jimmy Seville. In early 1975, Jimmy Seville and a producer at the BBC by the name of Roger Ordish began brainstorming for a new program with the premise being that Seville, through his various charities, had fixed things for so many people throughout Britain, it would be a great idea if they took the concept of Seville fixing things for people and applied it to a primetime television show. They took the premise from a few other shows, most notably... Generation Game and That's Life, which were two British television programs that encouraged participation from the viewing audience. So Ordish and Seville came up with the idea, well, what if people throughout Britain wrote into the show and asked for Seville to fix something for them? He would in turn do this, and then they would videotape it, and they would transmit it, across the airwaves. Seville is credited with giving the name to this show, stating in numerous interviews that when it was presented to him, he pronounced it Jim'll Fix It. Producers initially thought that he meant the name of the show will be Jim Will Fix It. According to Seville, however, it was Jim'll. J-I-M apostrophe L-L. There were reservations within the BBC that the show would not fare well with the public. So initially a 10-week program was ordered. What nobody could foresee, however, was the onslaught that came from the proposal of this television show from the viewing public. Gemel Fix It was not just a TV show in Great Britain. It was nearly a cultural icon within Great Britain. In fact, you can go online and you can find Gemel Fix It badges from people who had, were on the show. And they fetch a fairly hefty price tag On May 31st, 1975, an unsuspecting British public were treated to this. Side note, I do not own the license to that song. It belongs wholly to the BBC and the songwriters, and I am playing it only for historical context. In the three months leading up to the premiere of the show, BBC was inundated with roughly 9,000 letters with people asking for Seville to fix things for them. Seville and his producer decided that wherever possible, fixes would be filmed live in studio, although anyone who is familiar with this show knows that the majority of the most well-known fixits were pre-taped Usually on site wherever the per- particular fix was to take place, so Ordish and his team whittled down the nine thousand fixits to a list of two hundred. The opening sequence with the theme song which it just played for you was filmed in and around Shepherd's Bush with Seville leading a group of children around behind him and on a train. Producer Roger Ordish stated many, many years later that he and Seville were on a train when Seville spied a woman and her daughter outside. And Seville is supposed to have said... Quote, unquote. Who's that with you? Is that your sister? To which the mother replied, No, it's my daughter. Seville is then said to have asked how old the daughter was, to which the daughter replied, 16. Seville is then said to have turned to Roger Ordish and the rest of those who were inside the car with them and said, legal, legal. The very first episode of of Jim'll fix it featured a pop band from the united states who were very popular at that time namely the osmonds and it so coincided that the osmonds were playing at the venue where will fix it was being recorded and it just so happened that the day that the television show was being recorded the osmonds were off and they were able to arrange for three teenage girls to meet Donnie and Marie Osmond, where they sat down and asked the brother and sister questions, after which the Osmonds performed a musical number for the three girls. Other fix-its on this first episode included a young girl dancing with Pan's People who for those not familiar Pan's People were the dance troupe who took part in the dancing on Top of the Pops there were a few other pre-taped fix-its on this episode including a boy who got to drive a train and a young girl who got to participate in the dating of the channel tunnel. According to a man by the name of Bill Cotton, who was the head of the BBC's light entertainment division at the time, as he watched the very first Fix-It to appear on the show, which was a young girl who was swimming with dolphins, he turned to those gathered around and said, we have a hit show here. That is, as I've already stated, really an understatement. The show was getting high numbers from the start, but as the ten weeks crept by, the numbers for Jim'll Fix It continued to skyrocket. This really was a show that everyone in Britain was watching. Coupled with all of that, Seville, who was linked with a PR-slash-agency firm, got it so that one of the firm's other clients, Townsend Torson, could feature some of their various projects and vehicles inside the show to help with specific fix-its. It was kind of a trade-off. Their stuff would get to be featured on the show, such as when a young boy got to drive a ferry, and in return, Seville would be paid $10,000 per day to film commercials for the company. Because of this PR firm, Seville was also able to get the... British Rail involved in a number of spots on the show to help with specific fixits. And Seville ended up becoming the spokesperson for British Rail. Anyone who's seen the commercials, basically it went along the lines of, now is the time of the train, and featured Jimmy Seville, and these ran for years. So... This has been likened to Paola in that his PR firm were able to get these companies to come in, whether it was the PR firm or Seville himself, it's kind of left up in the air, I believe that you know then more probably than not the PR firm opened the door for Seville and he walked through it and then was able to entice these companies to come onto the show, and as a result of the publicity they were getting from the show, they in turn turned around and offered Seville advertisements, which, again, some people have likened to Paola. although it seems, at least from what I have read, both Seville and the companies were fairly open about this arrangement. Taken directly from Dan Davies' book, The Life and Lies of Jimmy Seville, when talking about this, Ordish was asked whether or not Seville ever insisted upon a certain company being used, to which Ordish replied, not directly, but he'd be very clever and say, I'll only be able to film those links for the compilation program while I'm on a cruise liner, at which time the when they filmed them, Seville would be able to tell the viewing audience which cruise liner ship that he was on and what company owned it. So as this initial 10-week program is really spinning up and turning into something that nobody was really prepared for, there were rumors going around among the BBC had honchos about Seville and his predilection for young girls. And I want to emphasize that again because I've gotten a couple of emails about this. The rumors about Jimmy Seville never, ever involved young boys. It always involved teenage girls, generally aged 14 to 17, some reports say 19. That was his thing so far as those who came around him and were most pliable. However, he did go outside of that range and go up. Never down, always up. All of the credible information regarding Seville and the abuse he is alleged to have perpetrated involves girls and women between roughly the ages of 14 to their early to mid-twenties. So this stuff was floating around, and it was also around this time that Seville was known to have said that he hated children. This may seem like a very odd statement when you consider the fact that now is he's not only a radio dj and television presenter but he's also the host and sole focus of what could arguably be called the biggest television program in all of great britain many 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 years later seville would say that he didn't hate children but he said that at the time and during the intervening years in order to throw off what he termed salacious reporters looking for stories that they could print concerning Seville and his predilection for teenage girls. What that boils down to is basically, by Seville's reasoning, he knew that the rumors were out there concerning him and teenage girls, and his mindset was, if I turn around and say, hey, I love kids, they're going to look at him and say, okay, this guy's weird, he's not married, We've never had any indication that he's been involved in a relationship with an adult woman. He's got to be a pedophile. Which, as we have covered at length in other episodes, is exactly what they did once Seville died, and which is exactly what I believe to be a gross mischaracterization of him. He was not a pedophile he was a sexual predator and there is a large gaping difference between the two a pedophile goes for only underage usually prepubescent Seville went for you know, middle pubescent and post pubescent as well as adult females which is not something you generally find with a pedophile. That's why I say Seville was a sexual predator, not a pedophile. Because the he had his age range that he specifically went after, but even then he really didn't go after them. They came to him because of his celebrity and star status and... There are stories of him kind of forcing himself and not other stories out there of him full-on forcing himself on girls and young women. Yes, those stories probably did happen, although I believe many of them were looked at differently well after the fact, and we'll get back to this in just a moment.
0: best-selling author of The House of Silver Doors, The Blood Godge Trilogy, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie. The name was burnt into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand, and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night, or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, and Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover e-book pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com only from Corpse Creek Publishing you have been
1: Alright, we are back. Remember the name of that book, Maggie? Go out and get it. tinyurl.com backslash Maggie hyphen book. It's tinyurl.com backslash Maggie hyphen book. Right before the break, I was talking about how I believe that a lot of the stories of Seville forcing himself on people were are in fact... There's really no other nice way to say this. Buyer's remorse. I think a lot of these individuals knew what was going to be expected of them when they got in and around Jimmy Seville and got him alone. I think a lot of them were well after the fact the individual realized that what had taken place was wrong or they regretted it. And that's not to put any blame on the victims. I can't imagine what it must be like to be around someone who has the level of celebrity that Jimmy had and find out that, hey, he wants to have relations with you. When you're 16, 17 years old, that is not an easy position to be put in, I'm certain. And I have to believe that it's even harder to say no when you're with someone who is that well-known and that powerful. So a lot of these girls went along with it. It's not hyperbole, that's fact. You can find interviews with young women who later realized that what he did under current law constitutes abuse. And they realized that only upon reflecting on the fact that hey, I was 16, 17, 14, 15 years old. He was a full-grown adult. We shouldn't have been doing those things, and he was wrong to ask me to do those things. But again, it comes down to who he was, the amount of power he had, whether it was real or perceived, and being in these positions with these vulnerable individuals where he could turn around and demand these things from them. Again, I am going to cover some of the reports that were compiled after his death concerning the abuse allegations. And I want to emphasize they are still allegations. There has never been any full-blown evidence to put out that Seville physically forced anyone to do anything, just as Seville was never tried or convicted of any of the things that he has been accused of. Although, from my own research, I know he did a lot of these things and yes, they are reprehensible. For the most part, the individuals he was involved with, unfortunately, what they did was not illegal. Back to the show, Seville had an aide for a number of years, a woman by the name of Janet Cope, who he met while he was at one of the various hospitals. I believe, although I might be mistaken because I don't have all of my notes in front of me, I believe he met Janet Cope at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital where she was working. And because Seville was looked at so highly in this institution, they basically turned around and allowed Janet to begin working for Seville full-time as his secretary, his press secretary, you name it. If Seville needed another person to do it, she took care of it. That included going through and reading all of his mail, keeping track of his schedule, yada, yada, yada. She was with Seville more than anyone else that we're aware of. And Janet Cope has stated numerous times that while Seville was a very calculating and manipulative man, she never in all of the 30 some odd years that she was associated with him saw Seville perform any type of abuse towards anyone. She saw him being his, you know, his public face, which was this rather aloof, goofy individual. Well, behind the scenes, he was kind of standoffish and demanding, but that she didn't ever see him force a young girl or a woman to do anything with him, nor did he ever attempt to do anything with her. She has stated on numerous occasions, though, that Seville really did not like children, despite what he would say many, many years later. She stated that Seville thought they were a nuisance and brats, and the only reason that he allowed the children to be around him was because they earned him money. After the initial 10-week run of Jim Will Fix It concluded and the BBC had a chance to look at the numbers that the program have received, it was very quickly decided that they would do a Christmas special one interesting thing about this particular fix-it that I'm going to get into is most of the time, Jimmy was not physically involved with the fixits that took place in what they call location shoots. This particular one, however, Seville was involved with because a young boy wanted to visit the place that Jesus had been born at. It so happened that Seville was planning a 10-day holiday to Israel at this period of time in conjunction with his work with a group known as the Friends of Israel Education Trust. So because he was already going to be there and this young boy wanted to have this fix-it done, Seville ended up appearing in this fix-it that was recorded on site. There's been a lot of talk about this particular trip to Israel and Jimmy Seville. So now that we're here, we might as well just get into it. There are a group of people out there who believe that Jimmy Seville was working for the British government. Whether this is true or not, I cannot say, but there is just as much evidence to suggest that he was as there is evidence to suggest that he was not. Seville liked to play it that he was working for the government and that this trip, as well as the fix-it, were merely a cover for him to go in and do the work of the British government. According to Seville, he had been invited to Israel by President Ephraim Katzer to advise on matters... Of national security. Seville stated that he not only met with the president of Israel but the entire cabinet. Some people have gone so far as to say most notably a Jewish businessman who was friends of Seville most notably a Jewish businessman who stated that Seville was sent over there to sound out a possible meeting between the Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, and the President of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. According to this businessman, Seville was friends with Sadat's wife, Jehan, and because of that and his ties to The British government he was chosen to sound out the idea with the Prime Minister of Israel. Whether Seville actually went over there for these purposes or not is left to the mind of the listener. It is known however that during his 10-day trip to Israel He did in fact meet with the president as well as with the prime minister of Israel. According to Seville, he told the prime minister during this meeting, I'm very disappointed because you've all forgot how to be Jewish and that's why everybody is taking you to the cleaners. Before further going on to say you won the six-day war, you took all that land, you give it all back, and you give the only oil well in the area back, and now you're paying the Egyptians for the oil that you had. Seville stated that he was pulled into a side room where he was instructed to repeat what he had just said to the president, and the next day a car was sent for him, at which point he was brought before the Israeli cabinet and he spoke to the cabinet and told them his thoughts on the entire situation. According to Seville, quote unquote, they did what I suggested and it worked out 100% successful. Roger Ordish counters this with Quote, he said that to other people in my presence, surely knowing that I knew that was not what happened. We met the President of Israel, but the President of Israel is not a powerful person. He's a figurehead. It's the Prime Minister who is the important one. The way he talked about it made it sound like he was mediating between Palestine and Israel. Ordish put this down to Seville's massive ego. Again, I can't say whether or not Seville was working for the UK government when he was over there, but it should be noted that when he returned to the United Kingdom after his 10 days in Israel, the Israeli consulate sent him an unspecified gift. Seville also claimed that he visited the egyptian embassy in june of 75 to discuss a vip invitation to meet president sadat in cairo whether or not this actually occurred we will likely never know but it is interesting to point out that sadat and israel did meet in 1977 two years after seville's visit Another thing that happened during this trip to Israel is that apparently Seville became somewhat obsessed with the image of Jesus wandering alone in the desert. In fact, in Seville's second book, God Will Fix It, he talks about being alone at the Dead Sea stating, at the place where the Good Samaritan looked after the chap who had been set upon by the robbers, going further on to state that it was a particularly religious moment. Others who were on this trip have spoken about how Seville became somewhat zealous about the idea of going off alone into the desert, and that Seville spoke with them at length, which was very uncharacteristic of him, about being and walking in the same places that Jesus had walked. According to Seville, quote, unquote, I was able to be in the same area where Jesus had walked and lived and worked out his mental application of the world, That gave me a chance to work out my mental application to the world in exactly the same way as he did. I weighed up the forms as he must have weighed up form, and I came to certain decisions. He further went on to state that he likened this to toting up the score of life, and he said that he tried to see whether he had gone right or gone wrong, and that he saw where he had gone wrong in certain areas, although he felt certain that, by and large, he had gone right. Quote, I was wobbling about in between the white lines a little bit and sometimes crossing over the line, but coming back, as it were. Describing being alone in the wilderness, he stated that he felt God very close by me. Seville was filmed walking from Jerusalem to Bethlehem carrying a walking stick in his hands, and there are videos and footage of him out there where he really does cast a almost demented Christ-like visage as Seville grew a beard out while he was in the Holy Land. Some people, such as the producer of Jim Will Fix It, Roger Ordish, have stated they believed Seville had a messianic complex... Well, another man, a reverend who worked with Seville on Speakeasy and the God'll Fix It books, said that Seville saw himself more like a pastor. Further stating that Seville was an enormously complex character and a ruined person, when pushed to expand upon why he thought Seville was a ruined person, it was stated his proclivities overpowered his undoubtable intelligence. January of 1976 saw Seville continuing on as he had for the last few years. At this point, Seville was nearly 15 years old. And in addition to all of his entertainment enterprises, he was still involved in various runs for charity, bike riding, as well as wrestling professionally, with one notable instance being a 12-day run from Land's End to London in January of 1976. Seville ran 291 miles in order to raise 1,000 pounds for disabled individuals. As with everything else that is and was Jimmy Seville, however, the run had a double meaning to it, because in doing so, Jimmy Seville was able to further raise his star power in the eyes of the general public, which, as you know if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, was really the heart of everything Jimmy Seville did. It really had nothing to do with doing good for other people. It was all about raising people's perceptions of him and placing himself into a higher caliber of person than was previously thought According to Dan Davies, in his book, The Life and Lies of Jimmy Seville, Seville was often, during this period of time, sent large quantities of money from admiring fans. One such instance, a woman sent him £3,000 in the mail because she wanted to buy him a watch. Seville had the watch purchased, a gold Rolex with diamonds on it, and in return, he offered his old watch up off for raffle in a charity event. Seville is known to have done this type of stuff quite often. Whenever something new would come into his life, he would take a personal possession of his own that had no real meaning to him and raffle it off with the proceeds going to... Charity. This, in effect, let people know how big of a star he was that he could have these things while at the same time painted the image in the mind of the public that he was such a good and giving person that he would take these trinkets and raffle them off so that those who were less fortunate could live better lives. This is a pattern Seville repeated over and over again throughout his life, boasting of how much he gave to charity, the same time boasting of how much money he made and how powerful he was. One thing Seville liked to do during this period of time after the first season of Jim will fix it was let people know that His television program had received 15 million viewers a week, and that when the first series ended, the numbers were only going up, and they would continue to do that throughout the 20-some-odd years that the show ran. Again, this is all self-serving for Seville, because it is his way of letting people know how good of a person he is, but also how famous and important. Coordinated he is in terms of his sexual relations this is the type of thing that he would let be known to his various partners whether willing or unwilling legal or illegal so that they would realize that I can't say no to this person really I mean if you think about it that's the reason he was doing it again I talked about it a few moments ago in connection with the girls he's known to have abused. In their minds, he's a very powerful, important person. You can't say no to him because who's going to believe me over this really rich and famous and powerful person? That was how Jimmy Seville operated, not just in his sex life, but in all aspects of his life. Because to Seville, everything was a business dealing. Whether it was getting a new television program or working as a sponsor for an organization or even having sexual relations with somebody, all of it was done with the cold, calculated, detached manner of an individual who is operating a business. And even those few women who have come forward after his demise stating that they were his girlfriend, have characterized him as somebody who really had no emotions beyond what he could get out of life and out of other people, how he controlled them, and how almost mechanical he was in all aspects of his life. We are going to end the show here at the start of 1976. Again, I thank you for joining me on this ninth look at the life and crimes of Jimmy Seville. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast network. Leave a five-star review. If you want to help support the show, please consider going to tinyurl.com backslash dcseville and becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month. If you'd like to get in contact with me, please go to corpsecreekpublishing.com and just click on the Contact Us form, and I do respond to all emails that are received there. The Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing, and until next time, stay morbid.